<clears throat> John, you know in werewolf lore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you, finally, finally, we're talking about werewolf lore. Please, thank God. Yes, you and I. Yeah, you and I are uh, lycanthropy enthusiasts. But you know the idea. Um, in some stories, if you're cursed with this werewolfism, you have to kill the person that or the animal that caused it, and that will uh, lift this curse. I think we should do the same for the common cold. Okay. If you know the person who gave it to you, you should be allowed to murder them and have your cold cured instantly. I mean, that's just science. Yeah, that's just how science should work. Yeah, I'm just saying this is how the world should work. The point is, I have a cold, and it's a, it's not it's not going away. No. So sorry if I sound groggy this episode. Ugh, that's just city slicker problems. <sighs> Don't do this. No. <laughs> nope. Um, I ain't one of your big city fancy types. I reckon. I'm a good old boy, working, living out in the wilderness. That is patently untrue. <laughs> Exploring the big wide west and deciding what kind of man I want to be. That's the spirit of the you west. You spent a combined hour outside of air conditioning these last three years. <laughs> First of all, I can't afford air conditioning. How dare you? I okay, know, I know. that was that was a joke. I, I apologize, but yes, uh, for the next month or so, we're looking at westerns, John. And why is it because it's a uniquely American? Spirit. It's a uniquely American genre that um, plays off our frontier spirit. Why is it, John? Why are we looking at the Westworld? I love right Westworld. Now? Westworld, please. More <laughs> Westworld, please. Right, nerd. John, why do you love Westworld so much? Because it's the closest thing I have to Lost anymore. Which is like, oh, what's what's the maze? What's the door? That's something you nobody so many, said. You, so many questions. Please, please. And they're like, well, technically it's a metaphor. And I'm like, oh, you got me. <laughs> you fooled me again. Yeah. Thanks, J.J. Abrams. <laughs> Your mystery box is nothing but a turd. Ouch, but I that... fall for it every time. Mm -hmm. that, that is a sentence that nobody's ever uttered before. Like, hey, I, Lost, I need more of that in my life. <laughs> I need How more frustrating okay. uh, mysteries that I look up the wikis on and then just lead nowhere. Oh, I'm sorry. What's your like? What were you watching in 2004? Hmm? Uh, that it, absorbed you at such a same level. Uh, hmm? MythBusters, hmm? obviously. <laughs> you and I were early adopters of MythBusters. Well, yeah, because we're smart, erudite people. Absolutely. Well, erudite, hmm. but also inquisitive. It definitely played off that. Yeah, I can't think of any other. Maybe part of the interruption was the other TV show I watched in 2004. <laughs> And all you watch now is just reruns of a Thirty Rock. Pretty much, yeah. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not on top of TV, nor do I have an HBO Go account. So I apologize if I'm not into Worst World yet. But I am into the Western genre mm. because I do just like this sense of possibility. Even though a lot of Western stories now have these tropes and these beats that they have to hit. It's as true as the American spirit. Yes, it's and all so about becoming the man you want to be. Yeah. So John, I'm I'm glad to go on this journey with you um, through the Western mm -hmm. genre. It's manifest destiny. We're going out there and discovering what makes America great. Um, it's uh, <laughs> giving diseases to the Native Americans. <laughs> Beating back them savages and shooting Indians. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's what America's all about. Yep. It's, it's uh, greedily pursuing a path to California and then getting stuck <laughs> in the Sierra Nevadas and resorting to cannibalism. <laughs> I don't want to be negative. Well, it seems like we already know it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like the trip's over. We've already got it. Yep. That's 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 all of Western America that you need to know between 1820 yep. and 1880. I think we're off to a roaring start already. Where are we starting? Well, with one of the classics, one of the, not only one of the great Westerns of all time, but maybe one of the great classic Hollywood movies of all time, and that is the 1939 film Stagecoach. You're the notorious Ringo Kid. 
friends just call me Ringo. Nickname I had as a kid. Right name's Henry. Seems to me I knew your family, Henry. Didn't I fix your arm once when you bucked off a horse? Are you Doc Boone? I certainly am. Now, let's see. I'd just been honorably discharged from the Union Army after the War of the Rebellion. You mean the war for the Southern Confederacy, sir? I mean nothing of the kind, sir. That was my kid brother broke his arm. You did a good job, Doc, even if you was drunk. Thank you, son. Professional compliments are always pleasing. Yes, they are. What happened to that boy whose arm I fixed? He was murdered. This was a pioneer, not just for the Western genre, but also for a certain Western star, shall we say? Yes, his name is Andy Devine, and he <laughs> was a great comedic player who would just go on to have a, lever- uh, a legendary career after this. Revolutionized filmmaking forever. Mm-hmm. It's no. just that iconic voice of his. Yeah. No, of course, we're talking about John Wayne. This was mm-hmm. not his first starring role, but it was his big break. It was what made everybody take notice, and that was thanks to uh, his friendship with the director of this movie, John Ford. Yeah, and so... Obviously, uh, John Wayne is famous for his very uh, specific cadence and speaking style, and it really works for this film because everyone sounds ridiculous in this film. What do you mean? <laughs> every every single character has like a interesting like vocal tick, or at least like an interesting voice that they're kind of putting on. So I think that's maybe why like this movie works so well for John Wayne is because in his latter films it would kind of sound more and more cartoonish and ridiculous, but for this one it's kind of like well everyone's cartoonish and ridiculous, so. Well, kind of fits. okay. I don't know what you mean there. I mean, this we should probably explain the plot of this movie is that there, there is a stagecoach and they're traversing through some dangerous territory. Um, actually, before we get into the plot proper, we should give a few trigger warnings here. Um, number one, there will be some animals that are grievously injured in this movie because um, they Absolutely. didn't care about safety protocols. Um, number two, you will see some Native Americans who get grievously stereotyped. <laughs> I don't think they're on screen enough to be stereotyped. (laughs) Well, the way they're talked about, but it's about a stagecoach of exclusively white folks trying to go through this dangerous Apache territory. (laughs) It's funny that you brought up the animals first, because they basically just treat the Indians like wild animals. (laughs) Yeah, or like this natural force that's out to get them. Exactly. Yeah, but the main crux of the plot is that, uh, yes, this, this stagecoach filled with diverse characters with different motivations have to traverse this very dangerous territory and it kind of set the template for like action movies going forward mm-hmm. i think structurally there's a there's a few problems with this movie because again the big major threat as they're going through the wilderness is the apaches and when are they going to attack and the big kind of climactic fight kind of happens a little too late because i remember thinking like when are they going to get to the fireworks factory <laughs> like they keep talking up these apaches and how dangerous they are and then they appear for like 15 minutes and then it's over <laughs> Yeah, I, I, we'll get to kind of structural things, too, because at the very end, it's like we've completely lost the plot with the stagecoach and the other characters, and it just oh, exclusively becomes yeah. about John Wayne. Yeah, there's another, like, tacked-on climax to it, mm-hmm. taking place in, like, the town where they actually need to reach. So. Yeah, but in terms of, like, setting up that template and how influential this movie is, I think it's just masterful. I think it's just one of the most incredibly well-done movies I've ever seen. And it is aired. a fantastically well movie. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastically well made movie. 
Um, I love the way it works with, uh, he plays with shadow and light a lot. Like there's a lot of characters who are kind of like silhouetted, especially at the very beginning. We kind of get just a lot of like dark shadows going across the screen. And it's all these, uh, these cavalry men riding out through the desert out in the old West. Yeah. And speaking of that production wise, we should probably get to our hero shot. The one shot that introduced, even though he'd been in 80 movies before this, 80 crappy B movies, (laughs) the hero shot of John Wayne. Because the way he's introduced, he doesn't come onto the stage. He's an outlaw. Exactly. And he doesn't call the Ringo Kid, and he doesn't join the stagecoach until about at least 20 minutes into this movie. And it's not a very long movie either. Mm-hmm. But he he gets this wonderful introduction. He's he's kind of standing against the the horizon. This the the other influence this movie had is that it was shot in a uh, Monument Valley, which obviously has these huge red spires and mesas and things. It's just gorgeous scenery. You'll recognize it immediately yes. once you see those mountains. They're in basically every western yeah. ever, <laughs> and it, and it dollies in and it racks focuses on this uh, Ringo kid, and I think he, he I think he um, swirls around his shotgun to reload it. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, like those production things, even though I don't think they got the focus quite perfect, like those little those little production touches are what make this movie exceptional compared to say others thirty other 30 movies where they just put the camera in a wide and just had two people talking at each other. <laughs> Which, there's still plenty of that in this movie as well. Because, mm-hmm. especially for the first third, it's like exposition theater. It's like, oh, you're going to the 2.30 train? Well, I understand why you're doing that. Here's why. But well done, exposition. Mm-hmm. So here's okay. the other, yeah, here's the other great quality I like in the movie, is that, yes, they did take the time to put singles on characters and edit those scenes properly. Um, so not only do we talk about John Wayne character, but the, the second lead is this woman named Dallas. Um, she is her, her reason for being on the stagecoach is that she's being run out of town by the Puritans. Um, cause it turns out Dallas is, is a, uh, lady of the evening who's lost her virtue. Okay. That always confused me because again, they don't want to say it. No, they don't say it explicitly, but yeah, she is a yeah, prostitute. But I, I figured that's what was going on. Yeah, but again, speaking to the production quality, one of my favorite moments is when she's about to board the stagecoach and somebody warns her, like, oh, be careful, it's very dangerous, this territory, it's filled with Apaches, and she gives a side glance, they cut to the puritanical woman, you know, staring and judging her, (laughs) and and the voice, or or off screen, she says, like, oh, there are worse enemies here. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, nice and again, it's those like excellent, that. excellent editing and writing touches that I think what makes this movie so exceptional. Doc, Doc, can they make me leave town when I don't want to go? Do I have to now, go? Now, Dallas, don't you go making no fuss. Do I have to go, Doc, just because they say so? Now, Dallas, I've got my orders. Don't blame these ladies. It ain't them. It is them. Doc, haven't I any right to live? What have I done? We're the victims of a foul disease called social prejudice, my child. These dear ladies of the Law and Order League are scouring out the dregs of the town. Come on. They're proud, glorified dregs like me. You get going, Doc. You're drunk. <laughs> two of the kind. Just two of the kind. Take my arm, Madame la Comtesse. The tumbril awaits for the guillotine. There's a few other character moments throughout the movie where she kind of she shows her kind of like harder edges. Uh, for instance, there's another lady on the trip, and there's a man who's courting her, 
and he kind of like does everything like waits on her hand and foot and then when she kind of asks for anything he just kind of like throws it at her <laughs> like uh there's a certain point where he like pours the water from the canteen into a little silver cup and gives it to the fine fancy lady mm-hmm. and then when it comes time for uh the uh, uh to pass the, yeah to pass the canteen to to dallas the prostitute yeah, when she, Dallas asks for the canteen, she, he just throws it at her, yeah. basically. <laughs> like, here, take it. <laughs> you whore. You winch. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's what I also love. I, I thought every character, this is my second time seeing it, so maybe I'm more familiar with everybody. But I love, mm-hmm. when you say it's exposition theater, it's very good exposition theater. Very expository in these moments. I thought the characters were very well, I thought the characters were very well defined. Um, you mentioned this prim and proper woman. Um, she's kind of defined by her stoicism, but also her costume. The costumes are also great. Mm-hmm. And I same mean, same with the southern gentleman who's courting her. I mean, <laughs> let's just his name's Hatfield, but we just call him the pimp because he's got this, yes. This fly, he wears a white hat and a fly ass white hat on. <laughs> he's got this white uh, this white hat and then this cloak that is like as dark as night and then a perfectly trimmed goatee and he walks around with this cane mm-hmm. and it's just he, the the actor they got just has all these perfectly angular features just mm, yes <laughs> and he's always like giving side eye to this woman because he won't, he wishes to court her even though she's going to go see her husband who's in the cavalry wouldn't you know yep so yeah that's the other thing too they clearly define their motivations like this woman wants to see her husband Dallas is unfortunately being run out of town. Uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Uh, Mr. Hatfield, the Southern gentleman, joins because he's obviously courting aristocratic young woman. Mm-hmm. And then we also have Doctor Boone, who's also lost, who's also being evicted. And then uh, we have a greedy villain as well. We might, yes. we might as well call him Mr. Potter. He's a banker. He's basically just, yeah. Mr. Potter. He's a banker. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously he's very tight with his money and thinks a businessman should be president. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what's right. Yeah. So you thought, oh, what are we going to see in an 80-year-old movie in Connected Today? <laughs> well, okay. Yes, they're all very well characterized, but I think it's because they're also very broad and cartoonish that they're all pretty memorable. Let's be honest. It's not well, like these are like deep, deep characters. Well, well, well no. So, sorry, this isn't a this isn't a realistic. This isn't a a, a John Cassavetes movie. You know, it's not like handheld <laughs> camera work and no music. Like it's it's theatrical. It is like a you could you could stage this as a play, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind a little theatricality or histrionics there. No, and I think that's why John Wayne works so well in this movie, because, again, everyone's kind of over the top. Like, especially the stagecoach driver, Buck. Like, oh, jeez! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're going to be the... driving through the dangerous country! <laughs> yeah, Buck is the comedic relief, and he's he's the most cowardly of anybody on this. <laughs> I think, well, Boone is also huge comic relief, because he's, he's a freaking drunk. <laughs> like, just every minute he get, he's nipping back something else, until, obviously, turns out Mallory is pregnant. And so in order for him to prove his mettle, he needs to sober up in time in order to deliver her baby. So that's kind of, I, I like that twist as well. I like that kind yeah. of like character arc. I, I wish it were a little more obvious because of what Mallory isn't showing. And so this, that is very true. This does come as, it came as a surprise to me, even on the second viewing, I've forgotten that, yes, they have a, they have a baby on, in the midst of their expedition. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that, again, that's, it's meant to be a surprise. So the fact yeah. that she's not showing is again, pretty exciting yeah so... I, I thought you were talking about you know you what you wish it was more obvious with boone it's like at the end he's like just water for me thanks like how I much did, more yeah I, I wish it was too because <laughs> yeah there, there's a slight comedic edge to him however he's unlike buck he's given this whole dramatic arc where he has to sober up and deliver this baby there's also another character 
who I, they don't really do anything with. He's everyone thinks he's a reverend, but it turns out he's like a, a whiskey distiller. Yeah. So the the only his only defining characteristics again. We should probably mention that there are seven people crammed into this tiny stagecoach. <laughs> yeah, that I think is is only supposed to fit five at most. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the 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 one character that gets short shrift is a whiskey salesman who everyone mistakes for a reverend, and nobody can remember his name, so he keeps reminding them like, oh, it's Mister Peacock. Exactly. And, and his, only, his really... sole motivation is to get home safely to Kansas City. Yeah, and he's also the most cowardly and the most scared of, you know, the the in- incumbent Apache danger. And ironically, he's the first one killed when the Apaches actually attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I well, and that's a that's kind of a, I guess that that's part of the unexpected twist too. I mean, you didn't expect him. There, mm-hmm. There's obviously some unscrupulous characters on the stage. However, you have this relatively innocent and benign guy is the one that first that gets first attacked and is the first sign of trouble uh, when the Apaches arrive. Exactly, and it's a very shocking moment because, again, you think it's a moment of peace, and yeah. then all of a sudden, like they're again, they're all drinking together and they're all uh, chiming in, and then all of a sudden, whoop, arrow right through them. But then yeah. all the Apaches have guns anyway, so I, <laughs> I I should have been script supervisor on this for goodness' sakes. No, I I think it's a credit to John Ford's incredible direction. Now we can kind of pull those punches and keep things dramatic. That is true. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, again, that final I've, I've... that final fight scene with the Apaches is quite spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the movie's hallmark, not only the introduction of John Wayne as a mega superstar, but also this final chase scene. Now, granted, we've been setting up the, the Apaches as, as the villain for the first hour and 15 minutes or so. <laughs> but then finally, as you said, they get to the fireworks factory. Mm-hmm. And it is indeed incredibly well done. I mean, just just the amount of production value and, this, and the speed at which they recorded this and the stunts that are completed, because we have one... We have one Apache combatant like trying to hop on the horse of the stagecoach. He gets shot off and gets run over by the uh, the stagecoach <laughs> itself. We have exactly. other guys, yeah. We have other guys just falling off their horses, and then sadly, this is where we get to the animal abuse. <laughs> yeah, the horses are tumbling over. And, yeah, uh, because yeah. they put up trip wires, and so the horses just tumble over. And gee, oh, is that know. how they did it? All right. Yes, it was just yeah, it was just trip wires, and you know. God for I don't even want to imagine how many horses were grievously injured and had to be put down because of that. But I mean, what is this? The Dustin Hoffman show Luck? Goodness gracious! It's <laughs> great, great reference, John. That oh, 2014 is laughing their ass off right now. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think that's masterfully done until they do reach their 
def- their uh, destination, mm-hmm. which is uh, Lordsburg. Yes. And then we get another 30 minutes of nothing that's really tied to the rest of the film. And there's, like, other stuff that I don't, like, for some reason, half the town hates the doctor for some reason. Well, <laughs> and I he mean, almost gets killed. Well, I mean, he's a he's a drunk. Well, no, I mean, it's because the rumor is that the stagecoach has arrived and this outlaw, played by John Wayne, has arrived. And so he's kind of defending John Wayne. In this. Yeah, we should probably explain, like, the... Probably the weakest aspect is this budding romance between John Wayne's character and this woman, Dallas. Yeah, because it comes out of nowhere. Like, all of a sudden, John Wayne just loves Dallas for no reason. Well, they not, barely had any time to interact. Yeah, not love, but, you know, we explained that, again, one of the great virtues is we see how clearly Hatfield pines for the young woman, Mallory, even mm-hmm. though she's married. It just shows up. How, how well, scrup- also, it's like we kind of understand it is. Yeah, we kind of understand where he's coming from because, again, the moment he's introduced, is like, oh, this guy's a creep. Yeah, because again, he's wearing, he's got his cane and his coat. Yeah, he's a gambler. He'll, yeah, he'll, he'll clean out anybody. He doesn't care. No, and then my favorite part is in the final battle. You know, everyone's like shooting out the sides, and everyone's they're down to one bullet. And he mm-hmm. thinks he, and he, in his mind, it's great. It's a great character moment. He thinks like the gentlemanly thing to do is to put the woman out of his her misery. Misery, yeah. So he kind of like we see her, we see him like load his last bullet, and he raises his gun to her, and then bang, and then the gun just falls out of his hand. He's been shot, yeah. and that's how he comes to his tragic end. Mm-hmm. Not really tragic because he's not a very good character to begin with, no. but he was my favorite. So, <laughs> well, yeah. So that that's a great conclusion to that story arc. But I, I again, it's not it it it's not as strong at the opening, but you do you do admire. John Wayne's character immediately because he's gentlemanly to Dallas in a way that other characters aren't. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it's because it's probably because he's an outlaw. He understands the uh, the reason why people get into dangerous or illegal means in order to survive. Again, exactly. he's, a, he's he's the scoundrel. He's an archetype in this movie, yeah. and I think that's why he you know obviously went on to have the career that he had. He's the Han Solo character. Yeah, he's roguish, and and so, but you do, he immediately has that likability because he is treating Dallas so well. Yeah. However, that's that's kind of a, it's a show-don't-tell moment. Mm -hmm. Like, we see their actions kind of reflect that in their characters. However, once they get to this uh, station in Mexico, Mm -hmm. this stopover, then it becomes more telling. Then it becomes more exposition. Be like, you know, hey, hey, Dallas, why don't you just marry me and come to my ranch like here? Well, no, and that's the kind of interesting thing. It's like, at first, it seems like it's just kind of out of convenience. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'd like to have a strong woman on hand, you know? (laughs) He's like, he's just lonely. Because again, that's on the on the western plains that's kind of how people treated relationships we meet this mexican rancher at one point and he has a indian wife and everyone's mm. like Im- immediately suspicious of the indian woman he's like no he's she's fine uh, i'm giving uh, this is a t- John. that's the terrible mexican accent he had okay yeah, sorry uh, yeah i guess the mexicans aren't exactly treated with a lot of nuance either <laughs> yeah but then she eventually runs off with the rest of her tribe and everyone's like ah oh, who cares she was basically a savage anyway and you'll just find a new wife <laughs> like basically <laughs> wives are basically treated like cattle <laughs> just yeah. oh your horse needed to be put down just get a new one <laughs> yeah it's again not the, not maybe not the most nuanced or <laughs> portrait <laughs> yeah and again like it kind of worked for me initially because it's like again the ringo kid is the scoundrel Mm-hmm. And he's basically like, you're an outlaw, I'm an outlaw, why don't you just come and live on my ranch, you know, see how things work. <laughs> it's not because he, like, genuinely loves her. But then when it eventually turns into love, I was like, I'm not buying this. 
Oh, exactly. Like, we don't see it play out. We only see those little gestures mm -hmm. kind of signal that he's really in love with her. And then the rest, but the rest of it, it's like we have to explain. And so it's not the, it's not the most compelling drama in the story. Um, and it's not the most compelling. We should also explain John's, John Wayne's, the, the Ringo Kid's motivation for being on the stagecoach is he wants to take revenge against the plumber gang who mm -hmm. live in Lordsburg and who killed his brother, I believe. Yeah. And so, like, that's something that, you know, it's, it sets up the entire climax of the story. However, we've only been told about it at this point. We've never seen that. We've never seen it play out dramatically yet. That's why this final 15 minutes where it's just between the Ringo kid facing off against the plumber gang, why it feels so disconnected from the rest of the compelling drama that we set up on the skate stagecoach. Yeah, exactly. And again, like up to that point, it's like, oh, the antagonists were the Apaches. We don't even care about the plumber gang. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem with the movie is that, again, we we should at least get one scene where we see, you know, how dangerous the Apaches are, which we never get. We don't get any sense of how dangerous the plumber gang is, because again, we only hear about them through exposition. Yeah. It's like, it would have been nice if we had like, you know, the Apaches attack, like maybe in the first act for like five quick minutes and then they run off or something like that. And it's like, oh, the stakes are raised. But that doesn't happen. Yeah. Or, yeah, they confront the stagecoach like halfway through and then rob, and then rob like Mrs. Mallory or something like that. Or if the movie wasn't so racist, that would work too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Why does it have to be Apaches? <laughs> Listen, John Ford, I think we should maybe talk about the progressive nature of this even though john ford wasn't the most uh, progressive guy in the world <laughs> i i was actually stunned by not only the movie like presaging this this idea like oh let's stick a businessman in the white house <laughs> it'll work out fine for us bankers like no, nobody's treated more poorly than bankers <laughs> yeah, i guess that's true yeah. yes <laughs> but it also um this movie also passes the bechtel test dallas helps out mrs mallory so you know it's women helping women <laughs> No, and I do think it's interesting that the kind of main love interest is a prostitute. Or, sorry, sex worker. Yeah. I or think that is kind of about very brave to do. Or, yeah, uh, probably I mean, like... I wish I wish we did get more scenes with Dallas. I feel like she's definitely not as characterized as well as Mallory is. But, you know, I already have two women in the movie. What more can you want? <laughs> Well, still, yeah, it's just a, it's just a shame to see that these kind of progressive. I mean, it's, it's good to see those progressive attitudes in 1939. It's just a shame to see them cut up against, you know, uh, Mexicans doing these terrible accents and <laughs> these Apaches that are just seen as this uh, natural or uh, a natural violent force. No, they're they're animals, basically. Yeah, they're treated I, yeah. like animals. Exactly. So it's a, it's a. There, there are some things that surprisingly hold up really well eighty years later, and mm -hmm. some obviously unsavory things that don't. Yeah, I, I haven't seen many John Wayne films, so I, I can kind of see you know the appeal of him. I mean, I do. I don't think there's the appeal in the acting. I think it's more of the appeal of what he represents. Again, he's playing an architect here. He's playing a scoundrel, and of course, he's instantly likable because when he's introduced, he's down on his luck. When they first introduce him, all he has is a saddle because he had to put down his horse. Yeah. So he's basically walking through the desert by himself. And if this stagecoach hadn't come along, uh, you know, who knows what fate would have left been in store for him. But, you know, obviously he represents this whole ideal of the West, which is, you know, a man can be whatever he wants to be. Exactly. And, you know, uh, I think that's kind of the appeal of the entire genre is like a, it's a kind of a world of infinite possibilities. And that's that's somewhat of what I see here with people that are so disparate and their motivations are so different. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I that's what I found so compelling about the drama. 
And I think just what I find most compelling about the uh, the entire Western genre. Yes, it's a, it's a it's a large swath. It's mm-hmm. a big canvas. Yeah, and that's what or at least it so interesting. At least it was in 1939. <laughs> but <laughs> as we move on, you know, we we kind of get tied into tropes, and yeah, as John Wayne got older, like he he couldn't play vulnerable anymore or mm-hmm. romantic anymore. So. Mm. Or Genghis Khan, he could never play Not Genghis Khan. <laughs> so, oh, but he he did. He tried. <laughs> he tried. Well, I mean, it, you know, we were like going through the schedule. There were so many westerns we could have gone through, and I was gonna originally do the Searchers, but I was like, Ugh, she would really do another John Wayne, dear John Ford directed film. I don't know. So starring John Wayne, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so. I'm glad we did this one. This one I think is better. Okay. Um, not only for. Again, uh, demonstrating all the virtues of the Western genre, but again, also setting up the template for every kind of action movie following this, where you have these disparate characters with um, who are motivated by different things. Because, mm-hmm. as as um, as many like film historians are willing to po- are ready to point out, Orson Welles was like, "This is this is the movie I watched to prepare for Citizen Kane." Like between the editing and the drama, like this is what I watched and. One of my all-time favorite movies is Akira Kurosawa's *The Seven Samurai*, mm-hmm. and it's basically a remake of this. <laughs> <laughs> you have you have you have a conflict. You have an outside force, like a, of you know, threatening this. In this case, it's just a town, and then you have these seven completely different characters coming together to fight that force. And then *The Seven Samurai* was remade as *The Magnificent Seven, a Western <laughs> again, and it all came full circle. And yeah. then the abyss opened up and just swallowed everything. <laughs> no, we're, no, we're not there yet. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, it was, folks, it we, will was when doing the the, we will not be doing The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. No, it was the remake of the remake of Seven Samurai that starred Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. <laughs> I believe that was the fall of 2016, and that's when everything changed. <laughs> okay. I read a tweet this week. Someone said, like, I like to watch The Ridiculous Six, The Magnificent Seven, and then The Hateful Eight all in a row to create the worst trilogy imaginable. <laughs> Man, not big Tarantino fans, I guess. <laughs> no, it's just all three films are just so different, and they obviously yeah. do not work together. No. <laughs> Besides the fact that they're all Westerns. Like, there's nothing yeah. combining them. <laughs> what, can we, what can we do with either five or nine, John? What, 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 yeah, what, what the adjective? Fabulous five. <laughs> the Fabulous Five. The Fabulous Five. No, I, again, I feel like we've already culturally appropriated those five freshmen from the University of Michigan basketball team. Why? That's theirs. You, you, just, you love Michigan way too much. You didn't even go there, and I, you don't even like the Midwest. How about the, the Divine Nine? There we go. It's about <laughs> nine angels come and save the West. <laughs> No, they're all priests of different backgrounds. Ah, there we go. Oh, yes. Who have so all left a, the cloth. There's a shaman, there's an iman, there's a priest, there's a rabbi. <laughs> and they've all been excommunicated, but they, they yes. all have to come and, together. Yes, and a pedantic atheist. <laughs> a college professor. <laughs> and obviously it'll be a comedy, because a priest and a rabbi and an iman yeah. coming together, it's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Right, John, let's workshop this. Anybody yes. do not do not steal this idea.
them up. Uh, Stagecoach, really good. Five bags yeah. of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I certify it fresh. Yes. It's a fresh orange on the John Mantell orange meter. <laughs> not an orange meter. Which is totally original. Again, do not steal. <laughs> <laughs> do not steal. <laughs> Speaking of fresh things. Oh, yeah. Let's bring it let's... back to the modern day. Let's let's go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In our signature segment, the orange meter. <laughs> the orange <laughs> Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Let's stick a let's stick an orange bulb in there, you know, an orange <laughs> gel, excuse me, <laughs> over this brilliant spotlight and uh, put cast something in a new light. How about that? Absolutely. Well, this week I thought I'd go with a little West meets East. Yeah. How about West meets East? Oh. As in director Wes Anderson, everybody's yes. favorite except mine. Because <laughs> <laughs> I finally got around to seeing I Love Dogs. And yeah, you loved it. Great. Okay, so what I have for Spotlight. <laughs> okay, okay. It was very, very good. It's obviously mm-hmm. not his best work. It is definitely better than um, Fantastic Mr. Vox. The story is definitely not as shaggy. Uh, there's a lot of setups and payoffs. And uh, it shaggy, gets weirdly, it, it, there's like a weird political like undertone to it which is movies generally do not have they're mostly all very personable but this this one has like a weird subplot involving like uh, the evil japanese government and how they're kind of like propagating to the people and there's um uh, I'll, I'll get to it but obviously it's about this um the evil government scheme is that they hate dogs basically <laughs> okay i wish it was deeper than that but there's like a whole ancient history that goes back to them hating dogs and loving cats so okay. i mean in, seeing that it's set in japan you think that would the, that would be dolphins but okay dogs it is. <laughs> ouch ouch <laughs> getting real with it exactly go see go see the cove or that <laughs> episode of cove. south park <laughs> so um they concoct this evil scheme basically you know in order to win votes but then also to kind of excise all dogs from the country which they create this virus that basically affects dogs and only dogs and use the fear of that that is going to jump to people in order as an excuse to exile all dogs off the island to the isle of dogs aka trash island Mm. um and one boy who's actually a ward of the mayor uh, of Megasaki. It's the fictional city that it takes place. Um, the other weird thing about this movie is it apparently takes place 20 years in the future, but it's still a Wes Anderson movie, so everything's still on punch cards and angel analog <laughs> technology. So <laughs> That's something I can never understand, because like, what if we're watching this movie in like 2060 <laughs> and and now you're filtering it through 20... Like, Sorry, is it is it supposed to be 2080 in your mind? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, that's neither here or there. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So again, Akira, again, Wes Anderson story t- storytelling style. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> um, Akira, basically, his dog was the first one sent away. Spots. Mm-hmm. So uh, he kind of uh, worms his way onto the island. Teams up with this gang of alpha dogs, voiced by all your favorite celebrities. <laughs> or go... infrequent Wes Anderson collaborators. Exactly. But they're all really, really good. <laughs> okay. It's weird because again, like. Wes Anderson's all about that, like, even keel, like, very stoic tone, Mm -hmm. but yet it works so well. Like, and again, like, it's, maybe it's because it's like, you just get that underlying emotion that they're trying to hide or something like that. Like, Brian Cranston voices the main dog, Chief, in the movie, 
he's mm. so good in this he's just like it's perfect casting and then spots is eventually it's revealed he's voiced by Liv Shriver and you know he's great as it as well because again they're supposed to be like these very like stoic dogs who obviously like love their companions but obviously don't want to like show it too much so that really works okay a lot's been kind of said about the um uh, cultural appropriation let's say that's on hand which i'm not going to deny it totally totally is <laughs> like because again so, the whole... wait so just to clarify you mean this is a portrait of japan uh this is a portrait of japan filtered through a uh hipster honky Yes. <laughs> I mean, they use Japan the same way that Lost in Translation used Japan. It's like, oh, it's exotic and bizarre. It's not like caricaturizing or like making fun of them. But again, it's like it's obviously using the setting to make you feel uncomfortable or alienated. Mm-hmm. And they, But they do use like the kind of style and tones and motifs in very interesting ways. One of the ways that's kind of interesting and also I feel is kind of like cheating is... Um, there's a lot of 2D animation in it because every time that there's, there's someone's watching something on a screen, it's actually 2D animated. Okay. So it's like for, they're tracking Akira th- across the Isle of Dogs, this, you know, cabal of evil government people. And, you know, obviously they have security cameras. But while they're watching it on their screens, it's like a 2D animation of what's going on as a, you know, 3D stop motion thing. So it's kind of interesting there. And again, like the art style is very reminiscent of, you know, old you know screen prints and things like that so it's like it's it's very lovingly rendered but again you have to understand that obviously it's Wes Anderson being like I like Japanese stuff because it's Japanese (laughs) you know it's not like he wants to really like get into the underlying culture or anything like that and they also say it's like oh I was inspired by Akira Kurosawa films there's like two scenes (laughs) where it's like oh it's a faraway figure silhouetted against the mountain like oh great yeah yeah, totally you love Akira Kurosawa great (laughs) well yeah we saw that in Fantastic Mr. Fox too (laughs) yeah exactly and as I mentioned earlier Akira Kurosawa was just imitating western directors at this point (laughs) so who's following whose tale here Get I guess. Dogs. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very clever. Mm-hmm. But again, there was more to Akira Kurosawa than just that. Exactly. Yeah. Than just beautiful cinematography. But anyway, I mean, it's uh, like I love Steven Spielberg. I put something silhouetted against the moon. <laughs> like that's. Yeah. There's so much more to his career. <laughs> yeah. Or I had, or I had a, a bright youngster, you know, looking up <laughs> at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's still a very good film, and obviously, it's very sweet and very heartfelt and very earnest. So I okay. can't. And you know, I love his style. So. And it made me mm. laugh more than once, heartily. Ha, 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 ha. I chuckled. I chuckled very much. All right, all right. Maybe I'll maybe I'll give it a chance. Already, I see that it does look better produced than Fantastic Mr. Fox. It looks like they actually shot at twenty four frames per second. <laughs> yes, the animation's much smoother, mm-hmm. and they actually you know recorded all the dialogue together and not in weird places, so the audio is very consistent. So that's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff Goldblum admitted he did phone it in like literally yes. he, phone, he he couldn't be at the same place as every other actor so he he was over the phone doing his lines but uh you know uh, life uh, finds a way <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that's Gosh, he is such a national treasure oh god he's the best he's the mm-hmm. greatest and that's another reason why Isle of dogs is so important we get to see jeff goldblum do more press absolutely and that is a gift to all of us absolutely it's a gift that keeps on giving i can't yes. get enough Spotlight Jeff Goldblum. Just everything Jeff Goldblum. But enough about me. 
Although now everyone's turned the show off because I've stopped talking. But uh, okay, ahead, why John, don't you? I saw Avengers: Infinity War, and let me tell you, I did not expect the Fantastic Four to come in like they did, <laughs> or for them to integrate the Star Wars universe in such a beautifully in such a beautiful way. No, we, you and I did not see. We're going to be talking about Avengers: Infinity War next week. Yes, we'll be talking uh, about Avengers: uh, Infinite Warfare eventually. But you yeah. know, we we everything sold out, and we're just tired. Yeah, we weren't going people. anywhere near the theater. Well, yeah. a shockingly, this again will annoy some people, but we don't have those critic, you know, exp- uh, exclusive uh, <laughs> press passes yet. We'll get there, but I know when you listen to this podcast, it, we just exude professionalism. So you assume that we're professional critics, but we're not. Yeah, no. <laughs> So we have to, we have to see the theaters, and or we have to go see the movies in the cheap seats with everybody else. Yep. And we weren't going anywhere near this movie on on opening weekend. Just ugh. No, and we're not desperate enough to try to get an eight o'clock Thursday screening. Like, ugh. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That'd yeah. Or worst. worse, like the nine a.m. Saturday matinee. Like, ugh. 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 For the Some plebeians. Of us have lives, you know. <laughs> ugh. Gross. Well, Greg, then what do you have for spotlight? Well, do John. Tell- this April, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of a very, very special film. Oh, yeah? Um, it's directed by Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Um, it stars nobody, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it stars HAL 9000. That's yes. that's the star of the movie. Yeah, exactly. What I want to talk about for a bit is 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, a film that I revisited recently just on this occasion, and I was just reminded how exceptional and special that it is. Mm. We have a very interesting history with this movie. Yeah, Hugh and I were budding film buffs at the age of thir- already early on at the age of thirteen, mm-hmm. and we and- heard about this classic two thousand one A Space Odyssey, and we thought, "Oh man, this is awesome science fiction, just like Star Wars. We <laughs> yes. have to see this movie." <laughs> Basically, I assumed every piece of sci-fi was like Star Wars, and if it wasn't yeah. like Star Wars, I was supremely disappointed. <laughs> yeah. E.T.'s nothing like Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, so imagine our surprise when, for the first 30 minutes, we're just watching guys in monkey suits <laughs> and the slow build of this of this uh, uh, monolith like, and, the, and the music slowly building, like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And we were just like, what the hell is going on? However, in the years since, and I've seen on repeat viewings, now I appreciate this movie for the masterwork that it is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, even even recently, like like somehow I just found that that first thirty minutes with the with the apes just that much more compelling. And again, even if you're a young film student, like just the brilliance of the monkey throwing the bone at the very end of that act, and then cut to a spaceship, <laughs> you know, just the, 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 just perfect Eisensteinian montage there, like you extrapolating <laughs> the meaning, yeah, like right then and there. Um, but again, also like the the middle act, like if if you are like a like us, like you know, just dumb and want just entertainment, <laughs> just obvious <laughs> entertainment, maybe skip ahead to that middle act, and uh, when we're off to the planet Jupiter on the spaceship Discovery, mm-hmm. and the the ship's AI, you know, we we have a compelling scenario here where the ship's AI feels threatened, and he jeopardizes the mission for his own survival. Yes. Um, and you say entertainment, it's still pretty slow at that point. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I did read a retrospective, and, and it did give me appreciation. This this movie was considered slow, even by 1968 standards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, and again, it's 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 meant to be a realistic portrayal of what it would be like for space. Like, and again, so these, it's they obviously did not cast movie stars. Mm. And, you know, the dialogue is meant to be 
completely banal. It's meant to be like, what are we doing here? Okay, what's yeah. the reading out on that? You know, so when do when things do go, you know, bonkers, and when the thing eventually becomes sabotaged, it's like there's no like high stakes kind of dramatic. That's why the most dramatic scene is open the pod bay doors, Al. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> like again, it builds you up to that being the most. It builds you up to that being like the most kind of dramatic scene, but again, because everything else before that has just been kind of very slow. Oh, well, that's a, well on my on my latest viewing. Actually, I was going to say that's not the most dramatic scene. What happens is just a te- just a little bit later. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't appreciate this the first time, but yes, the human characters on this spaceship Discovery are practically robotic. Mm-hmm. And you think like, oh, what am I supposed to extrapolate from that when they're literally delivering their delivering their dialogue like computers? And it's actually all the humanity does come out of Hal, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a stunning contrast that now I appreciate versus before I'm like, oh, these human characters are just boring. Like, but no, <laughs> now I see the kind of on this the third or fourth viewing that I've had. Now I see the very explicit purpose behind that, and yeah. that that's. That leads into my favorite scene, maybe one of my all-time favorite scenes. It's actually when uh, Dave, the space commander, actually gets back into the spaceship Discovery, and now Hal is powerless that he's about to be shut down. And so, like, it's more the it's more the comp- the computer now pleading, like, "Stop! I'm afraid." <laughs> yeah, you know, like, there's still like a lot of humanity in his voice. <laughs> Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Again, sorry if we're laboriously going over why this movie's so brilliant, but again, <laughs> like I you had, was... like you had to be told why the movie is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope we do sell it to people because yeah, it it is a little intimidating. I think people do hear the reputation that it's slow or boring mm-hmm. or disconnected, yeah. or again, like it wouldn't make sense to anybody who's not on drugs. <laughs> That, I mean, that's why we didn't appreciate it when we were 13. We weren't on drugs yet. Yeah. Now I can get all the drugs I want. <laughs> no, I think there's a lot, even for the uh, the straight-edge people among us. <laughs> yes. I mean, just, like, again, the visuals and the music, it's just, it works so well together, and it's just, it's an absolutely gorgeous piece of cinema, regardless of how sober you are. Yeah, because of how sober or how much you're looking for a conventional narrative, because that was our, I think, our first mistake, A, watching this too young, when we wouldn't, we didn't have the brain power to actually appreciate it, mm-hmm. and B, kind of, like, adjusting your expectations that, like, again, it may not be great entertainment, but it is one of the most powerful artistic statements ever committed within the medium, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the so, other thing that helps is uh, a few years ago, I actually read the Arthur C. Clarke book, which that this oh, which I, I love too, yeah, yeah, which is also again, and it works great as a companion because that does explain everything, and so mm-hmm. it is kind of nice, kind of having these two companions. It's like you have like the wordy explanation version of it in the book, and then you have just the pure visuals of it, you know, mm-hmm. on screen. So they both work great together. So I would recommend doing both. If you have the time, yeah. If, again, if you have the time, but you know, on its fifty on its fiftieth birthday, let's let's give a hip hip hooray for <laughs> a movie that everybody else has extolled and <laughs> held up. Well, and no one has regard, time but... anymore because they're on their Snapchats and their Instapix, and you know. Yeah. I'm hold on. I'm keeping it one hundred <laughs> as I post my story. Yeah. Now it should be called uh, 2018. Uh, keep it in one hundred. You know, <laughs> on fleek. <laughs> An on fleek odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> Hal is an iPhone now. Uh, my stupid phone won't work. <laughs> and Siri would say, like, I'm sorry, Bay. <laughs> Open the app, Siri. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bay. Totes can't do that. 
again, John, we should workshop this. We've got we've got a couple <laughs> brilliant. of brilliant ideas here. <laughs> I know. Ugh. Well, if any, you want to reach out to us, yes, if you want to help us workshop these ideas, you can get in touch with us via a, a variety of channels. Exactly. You can reach out to us on our Facebook page or our Twitter page. Mm-hmm. And if you want to contact us directly, you can email us at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Now, there's one other thing you can do. It won't, it won't communicate with us directly, but it will help us out. Yeah. And that's if you go to your podcast service of choice, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, whatever it may be. Go there. Leave us a rating. Five mm-hmm. stars. I'm, I'm pleading for five stars, please. <laughs> I think we've earned it. I'm sure after this episode, tell no. <laughs> but just, hey, give us five stars. You know, it would help us out a lot and help bring people to the show. So that you can say, like, hey, I really like this podcast called Aspiring Snobs. And your friend could be like, really? I like that show, too. Because exactly. I found it thanks to Google algorithms. <laughs> and you're helping those Google algorithms help people find us. Exactly. So think of the Google algorithms, please. <laughs> it's a circular system. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it all rolls into each other. It's great. Yeah. And again, the more people who reach us, the more people they can find me doing funny accents. <sighs> uh, it's that time, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping by, you know, week four, I'm going to have a perfect Sam Neill going. <laughs> yeah. Sam, no, you're thinking of Sam Shepard. I, I like Sam Neill. Or Sam Neil. No, it's good, but he's New Zealand. He's not Western. <laughs> Wait, who am I? Th- no, I'm talking about the uh, the, the narrator from the from the. Oh, Dude Sam Elliott. Excuse Sam me. Sam Elliott. Fuck. Damn it. <laughs> I'm cutting all that out. Shit. <laughs> I think I said Sam Shepard. Who's? I'm not sure if he's a he's a cowboy. He's like a playwright. <laughs> he started out as a playwright. He was a he was an erudite playwright in the '70s, and then later became that authoritarian like you know country dad. <laughs> but anyway, you're thinking of Sam Elliott. Yes, I'm comfort in that. Of course. Anyway, John, yeah. For beer as cold as the Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Thought it was a pretty good episode. Made yeah. me laugh. Parts, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but tune in next week, because we'll be looking out for the treasure of Sierra Madre. Again, movies that I've already seen that you haven't, because, you know, you got to catch oh, up. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? I have a life, okay? I'm and I'm too yeah, busy. Exactly. I'm going to lord it over you, the fact I'm, that I've seen I'm these I'm too busy going out and having sex, so that's why. <laughs> okay? And, I, again, I live like a Western man. Overrated. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need no sex. Although that Jack Twist is looking... <laughs> Can, well, I'm just we, saying, we, we I'm, just saying I'm not, but, you know. <laughs> we, need <to> re- <laughs> we need to revisit that movie. and just People don't complain about how terrible the names are. Jack Twist and Enos. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Could she be more on the nose when she wrote that story? <laughs> that yeah, short story? Come on. Don't don't besmirch a Pulitzer Prize winner, E. Annie Prow, or who, or however the hell you pronounce her last name. Whatever. <laughs> Is she French? Uh, Petra. <laughs> That's French for maybe. <laughs> maybe she's oh. Quebecois. Who knows? Suck me bleu. Yeah. <laughs> Mais non. Oh, <laughs> uh, and uh, that that sound of us petering out mentally shows that it's time to end. Thank you, everybody, Indeed. for listening. And until next time, partners, keep aspiring. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>